You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. Uh, Definitely want you to have a Bible handy. If you didn't bring one, there should be some uh, underneath the chair next to you. And we've been working through Galatians chapter 4, just verses 4 through 5 for this Advent series. So if you want to be turning to Galatians 4, that would be excellent. While you do that, just a quick review of last week. Last week, Justin uh, just gave a terrific exposition of the phrase, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And we saw that God has a son that has eternally existed before all time alongside the father, who himself is also God. God has always had a son, one that he loved perfectly from before time began, but the, in the fullness of time, as Josh taught two weeks ago, God sent his son to be born of a woman, and Justin explained that that phrase has at least, uh, there's, there's, there's more probably, but two that we need to hold on to and bring to mind before we proceed this morning, that God's son took on human flesh. He became totally human. In that phrase, born of a woman, implying that he was like all of us really fully human. He wasn't created in some unique, special way. Uh, he, he wasn't like birthed out of some sort of uh, you know, weird mystical process. Just like you and I, the son eternally existed and then took on flesh and was born and conceived in Mary's womb. And, uh, and J- Justin pointed out that a lot of the Greco-Roman gods, even the philosophers, everyone of the day were trying to get out of the world, trying to escape this life of misery, this uh, this terrible fleshy bag that we exist in. And while everyone's trying to escape, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is actually entering into the nightmare, the worldly existence, taking on flesh, running into the burning building while everyone's running out. The second thing that Justin pointed out that this phrase, born of a woman, is hyperlinking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And if you remember, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, they fail to live up to God's commands. They, they bring his curse and condemnation of death upon themselves and all of their posterity, all of their, their future generations. And in the midst of cursing them, God actually leaves this gospel glimpse, this, this hope of one day a seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. And so when we hear this God sent forth his son, born of a woman, we need to remember, oh, this is a new... This is a new Adam figure, and we're going to see a lot of those connections with us today. So Paul is using this phrase in Galatians 4.4, I'm going to read it in here in just a second, to carry all of this meaning forward, to build out the identity of who this hero is, but it still hasn't answered the question yet. We still haven't got to why, for what purpose, did God send forth his son? And so that's the question our text is going to answer us today. Go ahead and look at Galatians 4.4-5 with me. Let me read our text and then pray for us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together on this blessed day, first day of the week, to remember your son's resurrection from the dead. And just as just as he came in the flesh, lived among us, 
took on the curse for our behalf, died and then was raised again, would you give us new life through the preaching of your word with this seed, the gospel proclaimed, grow into beautiful fruit in the lives of all who are present. Amen. So these two phrases that I'm covering today are born under the law to redeem those under the law. And this phrase is only 10 words, but it's pretty dense. So we're going to have to chew on it a little bit this morning. But again, we're going to ask these two questions of the text. What does it mean for somebody to be born under the law? Christ is born under the law to redeem those under the law. So we need to examine that. And then the second question we need to look at is, how did he accomplish this? How did he redeem those who were under the law? And lucky for you, we're only going to be in one text this morning. I might read a couple others, but uh, you only need to be in your Bible in one other text. And that is the previous chapter. So if you want to glance to your left or even just flip the page once to Galatians chapter 3, Paul answers these questions for us in, uh, I think, just five verses. We're going to split it in half and tackle these two questions. What does it mean to be born under the law? What does it mean that Christ redeemed those under the law? So look at Galatians 3, verse 10 with me. I'm going to read 10 to 12 as we look at what it means to be under the law. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. I'm just going to pause there. The meaning of the word law here isn't actually a real mystery. Paul's talking about God's law given at Mount Sinai, sometimes called the Mosaic Law. And we know that that's the case because he actually quotes it twice. In verse 10, he's quoting Deuteronomy 27, verse 6. And then in verse 12, he's quoting Leviticus 18, 5. And so the principle Paul is pointing us to is this. If you break the law, then the consequence for your law-breaking, that's what both these verses are teaching, is curse. You invite God's curse upon you. Here's the fullest sense of it, actually, from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just listen to this here, verses 15 to 19. I think you get the gist of it in just one read-through. It really expounds those two verses Paul quoted in verse 10 and 12. This is God talking to Israel right before they enter the promised land as they receive the law a second time from him. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So that's what it means to be born under the law, under the Mosaic law, is to invite curse on yourself for breaking the law. But there's something even deeper going on here than just the Mosaic law, and that's something is clearly seen if you know what to look for, but you need Jewish eyes or Jewish ears to kind of understand it. Uh, it's kind of based on how Hebrew narrative works. The literary artistry of the Bible works through things like patterns and types and foreshadowings and things like that. The author expects the reader 
to pick up on these clues and things like that in the text. They're, they're there. They're not hidden or anything. There's no secret Bible code we're talking about here. But as an example, when you read about the stories of King David and such, the scriptures never take you by the side and say, hey, just so you know, dear reader, this is, this is a foreshadowing of Christ. No, like we put that together as we see all the similarities and the patterns and, and overlap between those two figures. And we're going to see the exact same thing today to see that the Mosaic law isn't just, we're not just looking at the, the legal code written down by Moses at Mount Sinai. We're actually looking at God's universal moral law that is true for all people of all times. Let me show that to you here, okay? We're going to see a bunch of connections, 10 of them, between Adam and Israel, showing that in some way, not every way, but in some way, God's constitution of Israel as a nation and the covenant he made with them was a repeat of the same kind of situation he had with Adam in the garden. I've heard John Piper said, if you rake in God's word, you're going to get leaves, but if you dig, you'll get diamonds. So here's 10 diamonds, okay? Watch these. Similarities between Adam and Israel. First, God places Adam in a awesome garden um, paradise. God leads Israel to the land of Canaan, which is flowing with milk and honey, well watered, and just covered with all kinds of fruit trees. Adam is put in the garden to, quote, work and to guard it. Most translations say keep, to guard it. The Edenic sanctuary in the presence of God. The tribe of Levi, which is the priests of Israel, are given the exact same command to work and to guard the presence of God at the tabernacle and then later the temple. The priest king Adam is told to rule the earth and fill it, subdue it. The nation of Israel is called a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19 and told to go into the land and subdue it, subdue the nations there. God walks with Adam in the garden. The exact same verb is used to describe God walking amongst Israel in the camp and then in the tabernacle. Eden was a mountain paradise with an entrance that faced east. The temple is later, later built on a mountain in the paradise of Canaan, facing east. The middle of the garden held a tree of life. The middle of the temple, sanctuary, and then later the temple, held the menorah or the lampstand that was shaped like a tree. When Adam was cast out of the garden, God sent a cherubim, like a crazy warrior angel, to guard the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Israel set up the tabernacle and then later the temple, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim on it, guarding the Ten Commandments which were within, literally, knowledge of good and evil. Most important for our consideration, though, is this. God gave Adam a command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he promised access to life, to the tree of life, if he should fulfill that, and he promised curse and death if he should disobey. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we read back in Deuteronomy 30, and then in these texts that Paul quotes, in Galatians 3, verses 10 and 12, that God set up the same legal obligations for corporate Israel, the nation as a whole. Obey, receive life and blessing. Disobey, receive curse. And so when Adam disobeyed, God cursed him to die and exiled him out of the garden into the wilderness. When Israel disobeyed, God cursed them to die and exiled them to Babylon. So you see, both in the life of Adam and in the, the whole corporate history of Israel, there is this pattern here of, of Israel being a, another Adam, in a sense. 
But just like Adam failed, Israel fails as well. And so when Paul says the law here in Galatians, he says it 32 times in six chapters. Throughout most of Galatians, maybe all of it, he has in mind maybe first and foremost on the surface the Mosaic law, maybe particularly like the Ten Commandments, right? We know this because that's what he's quoting when he's talking about the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy, Leviticus, things like that. But these Ten Commandments are God's written revelation of his moral law, his moral demands for all people of all time. They're not something new. That's why they're displayed on the steps of like American courthouses 3,000 years later. God's righteous demands regarding human behavior have been written on human hearts, on the conscience, since the creation of Adam. And then these demands were written down in detail by Moses at Mount Sinai. Listen to how Romans 2 describes this phenomenon here. This is how Romans 2 puts it. Same author, Paul. When Gentiles, pagans, non-Jews, most of us in this room probably, do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Israel got the law written down. They're without excuse. Very clear. Tablets of stone. The book of the law. But we might not be as clear. We may suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But according to Paul, we also have the law on our conscience, convicting us and accusing us of of our right conduct or wrong conduct. It doesn't matter if it's written on tablets of stone or written on the human conscience. Everyone on planet Earth is given this basic sense of right and wrong, God's moral demands, and then expected to obey them. This is what it means to be born under the law. Here's how the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it. I think this is really clear. Paragraph one of chapter 19, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept or a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him and all of his posterity, his future children, to perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. Paragraph two, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in 10 commandments and written to two tables. The first four containing our duty to God, the second six containing our duties towards men. And so every human, whether Adam and Eve, Israel, you and me, we are born under the law, under God's moral demands, his perfect rule for righteousness, as the confession said, and expected, like Adam, like Israel, to keep it personally, entirely, exactly, and perpetually in perfect obedience. Let's review where we've come so far before we move on to our next point. Paul used the term law, I said, 32 times in Galatians. It's like a hugely important concept of the whole book. In our passage today, Galatians 4, 4 to 5, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's actually the center of that very text, 4 through 5. And when Paul says the law, he's immediately thinking of the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, but that itself is a type pointing back to the covenant arrangement God had with Adam. 
So we see 10 different parallels in the situation of Israel and the description of their temple and the blessings and cursings they're under that are designed by the author to cause us to connect the two, Adam and Israel, to make us recognize that in some way the corporate nation of Israel and the law they're given is the new Adam planted in a garden country of Canaan with the mission to work and to guard God's holy presence in the tabernacle and later the temple, with the perfect rule of righteousness and the Ten Commandments and the other laws given by Moses, and promising life upon fulfilling it and threatening death upon their breach of it. Side note, if you were in Sunday school the past five weeks, six weeks, all this should be fairly obvious. You have the categories, the concepts, the key texts to kind of piece this together. If you think you're too cool for Sunday school, then I'm sorry. Not sorry. So let's go back to Galatians 3, 10 to 12 now. One last time, and then we're going to move, we'll move forward in a second. I'm just going to read it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Relying on works of the law, meaning like to be in a right standing with God. If you try to live according to the law, to have right standing with God, you're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul teaches this principle, that those who rely on works of the law to be justified before God, to earn God's blessing, they have to keep everything written in the law. He'll actually say this explicitly in chapter 5, verse 3, that if you accept circumcision, that's like your first step to keeping the law, you're now obligated to keep the whole thing. Right? The moment you break even one law, you're now a lawbreaker. There's not a curve, there's not a graded scale here, it's pass-fail. And the moment you fail once, you failed, just like Adam. When you were born, when I was born, we were born under the law. As a creature of God, his righteous decrees, which are an expression of his own character, stood over you, written on our hearts, on our conscience. And God said, do this and live. And you did not do. You did, and so you're not going to live. Right? That's the same obligations of Israel, same obligations of Adam resided on us. And that curse that Adam received to be separated from God, exiled out of the garden and cursed to die is also the curse on all of us. The moment we sin, that you're cursed to die and exiled from God's presence. I remember Romans 2.14 says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, it is a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. So even though you didn't know, you knew. They show that the work of the law is written on the heart. So everyone born of a woman, born under the law, is, this is true of them. But that also means, right, turning to Christ now, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This was true of Christ as well. This is his, he's the same boat that we are all in, right? He was born into this world under the exact same demands as you and me, to keep God's holy and perfect law, his moral demands, personally, entirely, exactly, and perpetually. Obedience to the law of God with the promise of life for fulfilling it and the threat of death for disobedience. Jesus didn't get a free pass. He was doubly bound to uphold God's law as a human being born of the woman and as a Jew circumcised on the eighth day. So he had to fulfill not just the moral law of God, universal law of God written on the hearts of men, but also all of the exact precepts written down in the first five books of your Bible 
Jesus was obligated to keep that code as well. Here's what that means practically. Follow, this, follow me along here as I, I just list the Ten Commandments and we think about what that means for Christ. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus lived every moment of his life in perfect obedience, seeking the glory and honor and love of his own Father. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Jesus never turned the true character and nature of God into an idol of his own making. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This has absolutely nothing to do with swearing. This means Jesus took on God's name as a Jew, marked out as one of God's people, and he bore that identity in a way worthy of his calling as, as the people of God. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Jesus set aside the seventh day of every week, his entire life, to rest from his work and wait on God who works for those who wait for him. Number five, honor your father and mother. As a two-year-old, as a 13-year-old, as a 17-year-old, as a 30-year-old, Jesus always perfectly obeyed his mother and father, showing them honor and respect with prompt, cheerful obedience. It's crazy. <laughs> Thou shalt not murder. Jesus never murdered anyone or even hated someone in his own heart. Number six, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus never committed adultery, nor did he even lust after a woman in his own heart. Number seven, thou shalt not steal. Jesus never took anything that wasn't his. Number eight, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Jesus never lied about anyone, ever. And number 10, oh, I skipped over a number, I repeated it, but we're on number 10 now. Thou shalt not covet. Jesus never out of envy and covetousness, desired his neighbor's family or wife or possessions and was always perfectly content with the physical and, and spiritual and relational blessings that the Father had given him. So I think Jesus is a 10 out of 10. Where are you on that quiz? Right? But again, it's, it's pass-fail. It's not an ABC grade. It's you get 10 for 10 or, you're, or you're, you're an F. Jesus abided by everything written in the book of the law and did them. That's what Paul quotes in verse, uh, verse 12. The logic of Galatians 3, 10 to 12, would tell us then that Jesus doesn't deserve the curse, right? Curse is promised for failing not to do everything, but Jesus did everything, personally, from the heart. Entirely, he didn't miss any of the commandments. Exactly, he obeyed exactly as the Father intended and demanded, and perpetually, day after day after day, week after week, through season and out of season. This is what Paul means when he says in Galatians 4, 4 to 5, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So what does it mean? How did he accomplish that? How did he accomplish that redemption? We're going to turn to our second question now. In the next two verses of Galatians 3, uh, 10, sorry, not 10, uh, should be 13 and 14, are going to answer that for us. It's going to be right on the surface, but we're going to, again, dig a little deeper into that. But again, this is the reason or the purpose to which God sent forth his son. Why did he send this hero into the burning building, into the disaster of this world, to redeem those who are under the law at the fullness of time? Jesus had to be born of a woman to fulfill the promise God made to Adam and Eve. And he had to be born under the law, just as Adam was born under the law, so that he could succeed where Adam failed and win God's promised blessing of life. The word redeem 
just means to purchase, to buy back, to ransom, even, all right? And so all of us who were born under the law, we were cursed and enslaved to sin. And God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back, to ransom all of us who were under the law through the payment of himself with his own life. It's easy to say, how did this, how did this take effect uh, by Jesus died on the cross for our sins? But let's go a little deeper, look practically what that means. And I'm going to show you through, through story. You should still be in Galatians chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 13 to 14 for us. Maybe I'll start in 10, go all the way through 14. And then I want to take you to that moment when Jesus ransomed us through his perfect obedience and and point out some other connections between him and Adam. Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's you and me. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us, here's the answer, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 13 says it plainly there that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, as is written. And then Paul quotes Leviticus, sorry, Deuteronomy 21.3 here, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And here we must see just how significantly, significant that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law is since he was one day old, because if he had broken any of God's commands, he could not take the curse upon himself because he, like you and me, would also be under the curse. So how did Jesus go about taking on the curse for us? Again, we could, so we could go to Romans 5. Romans 5 lays this out very clearly, word for word. We're not going to do that. I encourage you to go look at that this week. I actually want to do it, again, through the story, the narrative of, of Christ's passion, the last, the last hours of his life, okay? Because I think it's just stunningly beautiful to see these awesome connections from the story. You don't need to turn anywhere, Right, most of us are familiar enough with, with Christ's passion the last two days of his life to, to kind of recreate the story here for us, okay? Where is Christ on the night he's betrayed after the Lord's Supper with his disciples? Where does he go? To a garden, right? The Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of, Mount of Olives. Right, so there, boom, Adam imagery should be triggered in our minds. Second Adam's in a garden. And what is the tree that stands before him? What does he know is coming tomorrow morning? The cross, the tree. And what does he pray for the, to the Father in that moment? Right? Where Adam had a choice, God's will or his will. Follow God, trust him, eat from the tree of life, or eh, forget about it, I'm going to figure things out my own way, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Christ is in the garden praying, Luke 22 tells us, Father, if there's any way for this, this trial to pass from me, please let that happen, but not my will be done, but yours. It's like the ultimate reversal of the failure of Adam and the failure of Israel and the failure of you and me as Christ is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then what happens the next day? He's put on trial. And is he found to be innocent or guilty? Innocent. Pilate's like, I, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. 
He's publicly declared to be perfectly innocent. And yet the Jews demand his death anyways. And so they cry for the release of who? Of Barabbas, who's a murderer. So Pontius Pilate's like, I got to get my way out of this political problem. He doesn't really care much about what's going on. He's just going to save his sin, skin and do the politically expedient thing. So even though he's declared Christ innocent, he exchanges the lawbreaker Barabbas for the innocent one, Christ. And then Christ is led outside the city. He's led outside Jerusalem. He's exiled outside the city gates. And on a hill, he's crucified. He's hung on a tree. He takes the curse of Barabbas and our curse upon himself through his own death and crucifixion. And then on the, on the cross, what are his last words? As one of the gospel writers tells us, it is finished. Mission accomplished. All the purpose and meaning and reason that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law, is done in that moment. It's finished. The curse has been swapped. He's taken it upon himself. And Paul tells us here in Galatians that Jesus was taking my place, taking your place. In that moment, the second Adam publicly declared innocent on all accounts passed the test. He chose to do God's will, to live according to God's wisdom. The assignment the Father had given him was complete. And so rather than allowing the serpent to enter the garden and deceive him, he worked and guarded, and he did what Adam should have done, and he crushed the head of the snake. But it cost him his own life. He had to lay down his life in order to defeat the serpent. And the Gospels also report that in that hour, the curtain in the Jewish temple was torn in two. Okay? And if you remember, go back to our comparison between Adam and Israel. What did that symbolize? Well, in the, temp- the temple was the New Eden, where God's, where God's presence uniquely dwelled. There's cherubim there. There's all sorts of tree imagery going on. And the curtain separates the people from the Holy of Holies, the innermost temple sanctuary. And so when the curtain's ripped in two, on the hour that Jesus dies, from top to bottom, it's a symbol that the way back into Eden is now open to us, all of us who trust in Christ. The second Adam did what the first Adam could not do, defeated the serpent, and by his own blood, entered into the most holy of holy places to lead his people back to God. And so now, think again, conjure up this this Adam, Israel, Eden, tree of life imagery here. What is the new tree of life? The cross. Right? The Roman cross is a tree of life now. So picture the scene on a hill outside Jerusalem. You got the new tree of life. What is the fruit that's hanging on the tree of life? It's Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the fruit of that tree now. He hangs for all of us to partake of. Because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, we can now enter the garden. We can come into the presence of God and eat of the tree of life. So if the tree is the cross and the fruit hanging on that tree is Christ, how do we eat Christ? Jesus said in John chapter 6, the most unusual thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's so weird. 
I'm going to read it again. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are under Adam, those who are under Christ. Those who are under law, or those who are under grace. Those who are slaves to sin, or those who have been redeemed, bought back out of slavery to sin, so that they could live in freedom as slaves to righteousness. And so first, this, well, let me point out in Galatians 3, 14 there, Christ did this so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, right, the blessings Abraham, Adam forfeited, but God promised would come through Abraham's seed, those blessings now can come to all who are of faith, who receive the promised spirit through faith. How do we do this? How do we receive the spirit? Josh is going to talk a lot more about that next week, so I'm going to leave some things on the table this morning. But I just want to note a couple of things. First, receive the promised spirit through faith, Galatians 3.14. teaches that Jesus is now the fountain out of which all the blessings of God flow to the nations. He is the tree of life. He is the way back to Eden. You cannot free yourself from the curse of the law. You cannot pay your way out of that hole. But by faith, by trusting in the payment of Christ, he can redeem your life from the pit. He can buy you back out of slavery, out from under the law, and place him under himself. He will remove the curse of God from you and adopt you out of the family of Adam and into the family of God. And that's something that God, uh, Josh is going to preach on next week. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be even better than this morning, actually. And I'm going to leave it up to him to explain the realities of life in the Spirit um, that, that, is, that is ours if we are in Christ and the curse is not over us. But second, Peter teaches that in Acts 2 that this reception of the Spirit of life should be linked with baptism. As you receive the new life of the Spirit, you're born again. You should also, because you are dead in Adam, the Spirit makes you alive in Christ, that you should also, the church should baptize you with the sign, the sign of baptism. It's a sign of new life, of new birth, of uniting yourself with Christ's death and his resurrection. It is God's way of marking you out and saying, that one's mine, that one's no longer Adam, she's a child of God, I've got her, the curse is no longer on her. And third, the father who bought you welcomes you back into Eden. Baptism is the door, and then you come into the presence of God and you have a seat at the table of fellowship with his saints and you feast on the fruit of the tree of life the very body and blood of Christ as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Friends and guests who are with us here, maybe this first week, maybe even coming for quite a few weeks here, are you under Adam or are you under Christ? Are you still under the law? Does the curse of God hang on you? Be sure of this. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book. All of us have failed to fulfill God's law. The only question that remains is who will bear the curse for you? Christ can bear the curse for you and buy you out of slavery or you can bear the curse yourself when you stand before him on judgment day. But it doesn't have to be that way because the promise is for us, for our children, for all who are far off, to any the Lord may call to himself. And so repent and be baptized. Receive the promised spirit and the blessings of Abraham by faith. Let Christ lead you out from under the law to freedom and Christian liberty. Saints and members of Redeeming Grace Church, may we bring this to mind when we gather next month to share in the bread and the cup. Let us remember God's redeeming grace, the very name of our church, how as a free gift by grace, 
Christ bought us back through the body and blood of his, his self. When we gather to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and as we eat and drink to Christ's past sacrifice, let us also eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which is true food and true drink. And children, kids, teenagers of Redeeming Grace Church, do you have a seat at that table? Are you there at our family meetings as a child of Adam or as a child of God? In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. He says, For this, this promise, the blessings of Abraham, the spirit of life, is for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off. Receive the gift of Holy Spirit. Kids of redeeming grace, this promise is for you. You have a seat at that table if you will accept it by faith and be baptized and follow Christ. Josh is going to reveal, like I said, an even more glorious result of this redemption we have in Christ next week. But before we end, I want to read the Suffering Servant song in Isaiah 53, which in real detail describes the curse-bearing mission of Christ. And uh, musicians, I would invite you to come on up here. This is a prophecy that's over 500 years old that uh, the New Testament, in I think like eight different places, clearly points out that it's speaking to Christ. And so I want you to just hear and meditate on these words. If you're not in Christ, I want you to see the glory of the redemption that has been paid for you if you only seize it by faith. If you are in Christ, just glory in thankfulness that you don't have to bear the curse yourself. Christ is born for you. This is Isaiah 52, 13 and following. <clears throat> you can just listen. And then our musicians, I'll, I'll invite you to stand and, and join them. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. It turns out that that was on a cross. This is the new Adam, his servant. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, born of a woman. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here comes the curse bearing. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God sent forth his son to redeem those under the law. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
he shall prolong his days. It's resurrection language now. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.